Okay, well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Um, uh, you, As you uh, look around, you are seeing, obviously, uh, our stuff from our Wild Game Feast. Um, our Wild Game Feast is one of our largest evangelistic events uh, that we do through the year. Uh, we had about 200 people here last night. We sold every ticket that we had. I think we sold some tickets twice. Um, <laughs> and... Um, we packed the place out, had a bunch of fun, um, and uh, and our speaker Tom Garrison is actually here this morning, um, uh, just to enjoy worshiping with us. Uh, but he did an excellent job making the gospel very clear. We had nine people indicate that they uh, trusted in Christ for the first time last night, which is obviously the point. Um, and we're really excited about that. I'll be following up with those people. Sometimes, um, you know, people are confused about all of this um, and need to um, need to get some insight and some uh, uh, some additional information and so forth. So, um, so I'll be doing that this week. But uh, as we open up God's Word together, we're going to be in Luke chapter seven this morning. But as you turn your way there, let me ask you a question that you don't have to answer out loud. What is your biggest debt? Your biggest debt. Uh, some of us, at least a lot of us, I think, probably have at least a little bit of outstanding monetary debt. Hopefully very little of it is on a credit card. Uh, but debt can be a heavy burden, can't it? Heavy burden. It's not for no reason that Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower is the lender's slave. Because that's how it feels. A portion of all of your present and future labor has to go toward paying off that debt until it's all paid back plus interest. Amen? And let me ask you another question. How would you feel towards someone who came in to your life and paid off every debt that you have? Covered it all. Maybe they paid off the remaining $100,000 on your mortgage. Paid off the remaining $6,500 on your car loan. That $1,000 balance that you're carrying on your credit card from that time that the car broke down and you didn't have the money in hand to pay the bill. You think you'd be grateful? You think you'd be excited? have warm feelings toward that person, have great affection for your benefactor? Do you think that uh, you would be excited to finally have that burden lifted off of your shoulders? If you think you would be, then uh, I want to keep pondering that idea as we look at what the Word of God says in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be uh, begin in uh, verse 36 and go to the end of the chapter. And if you're able, I'd like you to stand with me as I read God's Word for us. This is what the Scripture says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet 
and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet her, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loved little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit from your word today as we look at it about what you have to teach us about grace and about love and about the forgiveness that is available uh, as we come to Jesus. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I love this story. It's just 14 verses, but it is remarkably detail-rich for such a short little story. But to understand it in context, you need to know the following things. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has gained a following. And He is becoming known throughout the land of Israel for His teaching and for His miraculous power. And people are coming from all around eagerly listening to His teaching as a rabbi. And many people are beginning to say, this man is a prophet like the prophets of old. And some are speculating even that Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah who's been prophesied for centuries prior to this time. You also need to know something about Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect within Judaism that was very serious about following the Old Testament. All of its commands, they had, they had counted them all, and they uh, not only had counted them, but they had defined what it meant to obey every single one of the 603 commands of the Old Testament law. They, you know, the, the, the law said that you couldn't work on the Sabbath, so they had a whole lengthy definition of what it meant to work. How far you could walk, as an example, before it was considered work. What you needed to do to make sure that nothing unclean entered your mouth so you would filter all of your water, which is still a good idea. Um, that you would not get a bug in your water that you would then drink and consume something unclean. Right? They had all of these rules and ideas because they really were serious about wanting to follow 
what God had told them. And the Pharisees, part of them, were also part of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders that ruled over Israel as kind of a home rule government under the Roman Empire. And Simon, for all we know, uh, may have been one of these men, one of the Pharisees who was part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, but regardless, he is a man who is uh, evaluating Jesus. He is trying to discern what's going on with this guy. Is he the real deal? Is he a prophet of God that we should listen to? Or is he someone that's just uh, another Johnny-come-lately wandering rabbi trying to gather a following after himself that we should encourage people to shun and ignore. This is not a dinner invitation, in other words, not merely a dinner invitation. This is a trial under the guise of an invitation to dinner. And there's one other detail you need to know. It was customary then, whenever rabbis would debate over a meal, that the doors would be left open. And the idea was that anybody who uh, wanted could then walk in and they could hear the discussion and be encouraged, even if they weren't going to be there to eat, they could at least overhear the discussion happening and learn and benefit from that. And so picture this scene. There's a low table on the floor. This is not, uh, we, they didn't eat in those days the way we eat now, you know, where you, you have a chair and you have tables. Uh, picture something about the height of your coffee table. maybe. And, and, the people who are eating dinner are propped up on their elbow, on their left elbow, typically, uh, because the right hand is the clean hand, the left hand is the dirty hand, and so you, you propped yourself up on your left elbow, and then you ate with your fingers off the table with your right hand. And you would typically have a, at least a mat underneath the table for people to lay on, but a lot of times pillows that you'd lay on, and you would eat kind of reclining at the table, and your feet, which were regarded as the funky part of you, especially in a day when all the roads are dirt, there's lots of animals uh, doing what animals do in every road, um, your feet would not be tucked under the table, they'd be kicked out away from it to keep the funk away from the food. Amen? Uh, also still a good idea. And, <laughs> and, um, and so... So typically what people did as they came in was that they would all wash their feet. And if you were a, a good host, you would provide uh, at a minimum a basin for people to wash their own feet. If you were wealthy and you had a servant, you would provide a servant whose job it was to wash the feet of your guests. But at a minimum, you would have a basin for everybody to get cleaned up before they came into dinner. But Simon has not done that. He's invited Jesus to dinner. There's no basin even for Jesus to wash his own feet. And so he's dirty when he's laid down. No way to get cleaned up. And in walks this woman in the middle of this dinner. Two rabbis talking and discussing matters of theology and eating together. And in walks this woman. And she is a woman with a reputation in the community. And it's not a good reputation. 
She is a woman who is known as a sinner. I think we're supposed to understand that she is probably a prostitute from the local community. And everybody knows who she is and what she is. And she comes in and she is crying. And she's holding a small alabaster jar of ointment. She stands then down at Jesus' feet and she is crying. Now, I don't know what you're picturing when you're picturing a woman crying. Okay, I don't know if it's full-on wailing or not, but this is more than a few tears. This is an ugly cry, in other words. All right, We're talking red face, lots of tears. Right? Because the tears that she's crying is not just like the end of a Hallmark commercial. They are falling off of her face. And they are falling on Jesus' feet. And as they fall, she notices, I'm getting his feet wet. And so she bends down and she unbundles her hair because women in those days wore their hair up. She unbundles her hair and all kind of falls down. And she wipes the tears and the funk off of Jesus' feet with her own tears and kisses his dirty feet and pours ointment on them. Now this is quite a scene at dinner. It's supposed to be a theology discussion. It would be impossible to notice, to not notice this going on, right? I mean, if somebody were to come in doing this, this is, a, this is going to at least attract a bit of attention. And Simon, the Pharisee, sees this. And he's, and he's sitting there, and in his mind, he is making a judgment about Jesus. And this is the thought process. Holy men in this day do not let women touch them publicly. You didn't speak to a woman in public, and you certainly didn't have a woman that you were not married to touch you. In fact, it's still the case in Israel today that if you are husband and wife, you're not supposed to hold hands going down the street. Because that kind of PDA is just, mm, they don't do that, right? That's not okay. And so here is, so here is this woman who is well known in the community as a sinful woman, as a prostitute, probably. And she is not only touching Jesus, but Jesus is allowing that. And she is touching Him in an intimate way. Because women in those days never let their hair down outside of their house. It was considered an intimate act. And you didn't let your hair down for anyone but your husband. And here this woman has got her hair all over Jesus' feet. And Simon is thinking, not only is he letting a woman touch him, he's letting that woman touch him. And do so in an intimate way. This guy cannot be a prophet. No possible way. 
to allow that kind of woman to touch him? No way. This is what I love about Jesus. Look at your Bible. This is what it says. Verse 49, or verse 40. And Jesus, you see the next word? Answering said. Simon's not said anything out loud. Isn't that beautiful? So, what does that mean? That means Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. And he answers him even though there's been no word. <laughs> so who does that mean Jesus is? Amen. Okay, just so we're clear, right? If you can read someone's thoughts that they have not stated and answer them, it is because you are the divine Son of God sitting at dinner with a guy who thinks he's hot stuff. Okay? And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells him this, this tale about two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Uh, that's the equivalent of about 18 months' wages. A chunk of money. A big chunk. 18 months' work. The other owed 50 denarii, about two months' wages. And you should know that the consequences of being unable to repay your debts in those days were pretty serious. You either paid or you were sold as a slave to the person that you owed money to until such time as you repaid him or somebody else paid it for you. You became their slaves. Sometimes slaves were allowed to make money on the side and you could buy your freedom back. So these two debtors are both in bad shape, but not equally so. The one guy is probably thinking, you know, if I get a little side gig going... I get, a little, I get a little extra hustle beyond the work hours that my master demands. I, you know, it might take me a little bit, but I'll, I'll get that paid back. I mean, it's only 50 denarii. I mean, that's, that's some money, but, you know, I can probably maybe pick up a little extra work and get that done. It'll take me four or five years probably, but I'll get my freedom back. I'll get my freedom back. What's the other guy thinking? I'm going to be a slave the rest of my life. I'm not going to live long enough to repay this. But the money lender forgives both men their debts. And Jesus asked the question, who of the two debtors will love him more? And Simon gives the obvious answer the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Why is that? Because the guy who is with the smaller debt doesn't see himself as rescued in the same way, does he? He's thinking, you know what? I can probably get this done. I can probably dig myself out of this hole. The other guy knows there is no possible way. And then Jesus makes the point, which is that the condition of your heart is revealed by your response to him. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? Isn't that a beautiful question? Do you see this woman? Like, how could you miss her? 
<laughs> right? I mean, guys, let me ask you this, okay? Uh, those of you who are married, when your wife is crying, do you notice? Yeah, right? It's kind of hard to miss, right? It's impossible to miss. And she is crying and making quite a scene. Do you see this woman? Well, yeah, duh, right? Uh, obviously, I see her. Her actions have made it impossible for her to be unnoticed. And then Jesus draws out the contrast between her and Simon, the host. In contrast to the woman who wet his feet with tears, wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with ointment, Simon did not even provide the customary wash basin so Jesus could wash his own feet. He gave him no customary kiss of greeting as his guest. Why not? Because Simon has already drawn a negative conclusion about Jesus. His dinner invitation is not a meal. It's an opportunity for him to put Jesus on trial and to prove his worthiness of being heard to Simon's satisfaction. And this reflects the fact that Simon sees his position before God as being like the man who owed the moneylender 50 denarii. Just like that debtor probably thought that he could earn his way out, so Simon thinks that his good deeds are sufficient to earn him a relationship with God. He doesn't believe that he needs Jesus to make the way for him. The woman, on the other hand, sees herself as being like the one who owed 500 She knows that her sins are a great debt, that they are piled up over her head with no way out. Now look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Doesn't that surprise me? Let me tell you what's even more surprising, what Jesus does next. He tells this sinful woman her sins are forgiven. And that causes a scandal. Not just, not just with Simon, but with everybody else who's in the room listening in on this. They ask this question, and it's the right question. Who is this who even forgives sins? What are they wondering? They're wondering this. Only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins. And, and Jesus is like, exactly. Wait, what? That's what they're thinking. And then He says to her this beautiful line, verse 50, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did you catch that? He's claiming authority not only to forgive sins, but to grant salvation for sinners. So what's the point that Jesus is making here? That to go back to His story, He's the money lender. He's the one to whom all sin debts are owed. And He is the one with the authority, therefore, to cancel them out in every single 
in that little tale of two sinners, forgiveness of every debt starts and ends with Him. He's not just some rabbi or prophet. He's God in the flesh who alone can forgive and can save. Now, there's a lot I could draw out of this story by way of application for us, but I want to focus our attention on just three takeaway points. Three things. First, and this is the most important question that you need to have the right answer to in your life. If you have never answered this question, you need to get an answer today. In fact, don't go home without knowing if this was true for you. Here's the question. Are your sins forgiven? Are your sins forgiven? And if, you, if you're sitting out there and you're going, well, well, I don't know. Let me tell you this. That's the position that all of us who know the answer to be yes were once upon a time in. We didn't know. But the point of this story is about the relationship between grace and love. The sinful woman in this story loved Jesus greatly because she knew that while her sins were great, His grace was greater. You know that? Jesus said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He was pointing out a great truth. We are not saved by good deeds. We are not saved by good deeds. And I don't care who told you that you are. That is not what Jesus says. And I always agree with the man who was raised from the dead. Because he knows how to escape death. Amen? If you can raise your own self from the dead, I have, a, I have a great confidence in your ability to tell me how to do that. Right? And Jesus says that forgiveness of sin comes very simply. It comes by believing, not simply that you're a sinner who deserves death and hell as a result of your sin, but also that His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. And that when you put your trust in Him, that He forgives and saves from every kind, every amount, every quantity of sin that you have done. Every type, every kind, every amount, every person who puts their trust in Jesus Christ is saved at that very moment when they put their trust in Him. Good deeds do not save. And the Gospel is not be a good person, do a lot of good things, walk an old lady across the street and buy six boxes of Girl Scout cookies and you will be uh, in heaven. That is not the Gospel. The Gospel is come as a sinner with all of your brokenness before God and admit your sin and say, God, I need a Savior and God will say to you, 
that is awesome because that is exactly what I have provided. I sent my Son to die on the cross in your place for your sins and to be raised from the dead to give you new life. And at the moment you put your trust in Him and in Him alone, you receive salvation from your sins, from death, from hell, and you become part of my family. And God loves you so much that He has done everything necessary to bring you into His family. Beyond Jesus, God can't go. There's, no, there's nothing better to, He can offer you. This is the best, most incredible, free gift that a person can ever receive. And Jesus offers it freely. And He tells the woman that she's not saved by what she did. She isn't saved because she cried over her sins. She isn't saved because she kissed Jesus' feet. She isn't saved because she wiped her tears with her hair. She is saved because of her faith. Do you see that? It's in the black letters in there. Your faith is saved. When you put your trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. So let me ask you again. Are your sins forgiven? It's not a matter of quantity. It's not a matter of severity. It's not a matter of distinction between people. It's a matter of do you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Second question. For those of you who have your sins forgiven, who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, let me ask you, is your love for Jesus growing? I think sometimes whenever we first become Christians and put our faith in Jesus, we come like Simon. We think we owe, owe the Lord like 50 bucks. Right? But as we grow in the Lord, I think we realize how much bigger our sin debt is and would remain if we weren't saved by grace. And when you realize how much you've been forgiven by God, you can't help but grow also in your love for Jesus who forgives you of every bit of it, past, present, and future, by His great grace. You know what grace is? Grace is a, is a magnificent Bible word for not getting what you deserve. For receiving instead what you do not deserve and could not earn. We don't get what we deserve. We get, a free, we get a free gift instead. We are set free from sin and death and hell. And our love for Jesus grows as we grow more in our understanding of how deep the hole we were in was. Love, after all, is the goal of our progress in spiritual maturity. Love is the goal. Love for God, love for His image bearers, for other people like us. So let me ask you a question as we consider this together. As, you're, as you walk with Jesus, is your love for Him growing? Is your love for Him growing? If not, it may be because you don't yet see yourself rightly as a person with a great, in debt 
that was paid by a greater death for you. And if that's the case, then it is time, men and women, to repent of your own self-righteousness and grow in grace and love for the Savior who loved you so extensively that he came all the way as far as you need as he needed to to save you. And you are far more sinful than you realize. That's the bad news. The good news is this that God is far more loving and gracious than you can imagine. And the longer you live, the more you grow in the Lord, the, the wider the gap between your character and God's will seem, and the greater His love for you will impress you. Is your love for Jesus growing? That leads me to my last point. The more you realize how much grace you have received, the more gracious you become towards other people. When the woman came in, Simon looked down on her, right? He's like, that woman that is touching him. He could see her sin with a clarity that he could not and did not have toward his own. Sometimes we get like that too. We see other people. We, we uh, look at the culture around us. We look at how depraved our, uh, our cultural elites have become in our, in, our, in our country. And we go, aren't those people awful? I mean, they're really horrible. I mean, wow. They're horrible. We even get together and commiserate sometimes about that very thing, right? What we ought to do is to see them as victims of the enemy who is holding them captive in sin and who is therefore leading them down the road to death and hell. And we ought to see them with compassion and mercy And we ought to be, as recipients of grace, great dispensers of grace. When you're growing in spiritual maturity, you get more gracious toward other people because you see yourself as another sinner just like them. who is just as much in need of grace and forgiveness and the salvation that you have received from Jesus. So time for another question. Last one I'll ask today. When you think about how you treat other people, and especially non-Christians, what word characterizes your speech, attitude, and behavior. Is it grace? Is it mercy? People who know themselves to be recipients of grace 
can't help but give grace. So do we? Are we people of grace? If not, it's time to grow in grace. Amen? Time to grow in grace. By reflecting on the grace that you have received and repenting of an attitude of superiority and condemnation toward people who are just sinners like you and me. And who need to see God's grace offered to them through us. Jesus said, Behold, the fields are white for harvest. Ask therefore the Lord of the harvest that He might send out workers into His harvest field. Who was Jesus imagining those people would be? Look around the room. Look in the mirror. There are you and me. And our world is desperately in need of grace. They are desperately in need of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to go out and they are desperately in need to see an attitude of grace reflected in the recipients of grace as we interact. Amen? Spiritual maturity, men and women, at least in part, has a lot to do with how we treat other people. And we who are recipients of grace ought to be characterized by that same grace in all of our interactions with one another, and with those outside as well. Amen? So, that's a spicy enchilada. It's going to take us a a minute to swallow that. Let's pray that Jesus will help us. Alright? God, our Heavenly Father, You have manifested incredible, amazing grace to us. Father, more than we realize, You have loved us. You have given grace to us. You have poured forth Your mercy in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Your Son. Father, You have adopted us who believe in Him into Your own family and given us an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You have given us Your Word. You have given us Your Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life, to look like Jesus. Father, You've given us community in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Father, You've given us spiritual gifts by which to serve You and to build up one another. Father, your, your, your blessings of your grace are, are manifold. We can't even name them all. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know that their sins are forgiven, I pray they would not go home, but they would seek me out, seek out one of our elders, part of our mission team, or the people who brought them to church this morning and ask them, how do I get forgiveness through faith in Jesus. Help me understand this. Father, I pray for the rest of us who already know and have received Your grace through Christ that we would be characterized by grace 
in all of our interactions with one another and out on 29 or in our jobs, most of all in our homes and with our neighbors, with our family, that we might put the transformation Jesus brings on display in our lives. And we might draw many to hear the gospel. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name.